Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to today's Medical Grand Rounds. We're particularly delighted to have Dr. Bob Brown here from Boston and also delighted to be uh, linked today to Haiti. And we, uh, we are uh, delighted uh, Philippe is on with uh, his crew and this is part of a telemedicine program that Brian has been uh, organizing for quite some time and we may hear a bit more about that uh, through the day. Today, uh, I just want you to see what was happening at the culinary medicine program today. This was uh, the theme of salt, sodium, herbs, and supplements, and uh, it went along with the nephrology talk of today. But last week, and as you know, we do the quiz based on last week's presentation, which was about dietary supplements, and the question was, what is the best way to get all the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients you need? And as you know, we, our wonderful team prepares the breakfast around the theme of what's been discussed. And we have chosen a winner today who answered the quiz correctly, which is in order to get the best way of vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients, you need to eat a healthy, balanced diet. And that was John Matulis. So John, come up here. And you actually win a bottle of vitamin D. Because none of us up here are getting enough sun and enough vitamin D. So thank you. Congratulations. There you go. And I encourage you to take advantage of the educational content that is put out there. This, is, this program is really to help uh, we health providers uh, to understand the best nutrition for our patients and for ourselves. So take advantage of the educational content. Without further ado, I'd like to bring Brian Remillard up to introduce Bob Brown. Brian, as you know, is our section chief in nephrology. He's an associate professor of medicine, and he's the medical director of dialysis for our institution, as he has been for many years. So um, Brian, come tell us about Dr. Brown. Um, I, thanks, Rich. I, I know I'm going to probably regret the beginning of this, but I'm going to try it anyway. I, this week has been inspirational for the, our, group, our group, I hope also for the house staff. And so I was trying to think of how to inspire to get, the, to get things off the ground. And one of my favorite movies is Miracle on Ice. So here it goes. This is for the house staff. Great moments are made of great opportunity. And that's what you have here today. That's what you've earned. One diagnosis. If you saw that patient 10 times, you might miss the diagnosis nine times, but not this clinic. Not today. Today we find the diagnosis, we cure the disease because we can. Today we are the greatest department of medicine on the, in the world. You were born to be doctors, every one of you. You were meant to be here today. This is your time. Now, now go out there and take it. Okay. So now... Um, <laughs> so. Bob's on the credentialing committee at the BI, so I, I haven't verified his 100 publications. I, I know he was a, a firm chief for 12 years. I know he was uh, uh, the clinical chief of, of nephrology for 40 years. I, I'd like to just touch on three points that I think are really important from Bob's visit this week. One is, I, 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 the first one is mentorship and what I call master class. Um, Bob's mentor was Frank, Frank Epstein, who is also my mentor, and, and really he has transmitted something that actually permeates our group here, and I, I think it, it highlights the important, importance of mentorship in, in medicine. 
And uh, I consider Bob a, a close mentor, and, and he, he, he demonstrated that with our fellows this week. He made rounds, and I realized that part of my education stopped when I left the Beth Israel, and I wish I could still make rounds with Bob every day because I learned a lot myself. So one message is, uh, you know, mentors, get one and be one. And I, I think maybe we ought to think about our CME time. Maybe I, I should spend time with, uh, with, with, with Rich for a week each year. If we, we, we ought to think on doctoring should be for older staff, not just for younger staff. The second, uh, I, I would say, is another lesson Bob taught us this week, and I'd call it curiosity and sheep. Um, you know, there's a, Bob talked about one of the papers he wrote recently uh, about there's a program called Fistula First where we've corralled all the elderly people in the world heading towards dialysis to get fistulas. And we've done many of them a disservice because it was just, the, the observation was that if you had a catheter, you had 10 times the risk of dying. And so we decided everyone needs a fistula. And it turns out that wasn't nuanced enough and a lot of people ended up with fistulas and we did them harm. And Bob figured this out and so he said, no, not fistula first, catheter last. But it's an example that we can't, we, we need to, advance medicine and challenge things and use our intellect to, to get to a deeper level. And the last uh, important point is uh, uh, Bob um, and I talked about the Haiti Project and, and he uh, has been a humanitarian his whole career and Bob uh, has uh, started a nonprofit that's part of this to help Philippe's group and help other called Torch, the Organization for Renal Care in Haiti. But I think, um, uh, I, I just can't think of a, a better person to describe uh, this lesson in medicine, Bob. It's probably many speak. Oh, let me turn this on. Is this on now? Can you hear me? Okay. As probably many speakers say, you know, that was a very nice introduction, and my mother would believe it. Um, <laughs> So, um, so today, uh, I promised uh, I wasn't going to talk about nephrology, and I'm not. Um, the uh, first, I, I really want to thank uh, Dartmouth, uh, Rich, and Brian for uh, inviting me here uh, for inviting me here for uh, that nice introduction. Uh, but I am addressing the talk primarily to the young people here, the house staff and students and any people uh, junior in their career, as I look back uh, kind of on mine. Um, partly, I suppose, because uh, for the old people, if you haven't learned the lesson by now, you probably never will. Um, so I have to mention my conflict. Uh, as an author, I have a book and two apps. Uh, go out, buy the apps. I donate the royalties, so you're just doing a good thing anyway. And. Um, Next, I need to give you the learning objectives, and uh, uh, while uh, you look at those, I, I just want to mention that uh, we physicians really care for our patients um, based on predominantly the knowledge that we uh, gained in medical school and from our reading, um, which is really going to be tempered primarily by your experience. And uh, over my uh, past uh, 52 uh, years in medicine, I I've actually had many memorable and wonderful experiences. Uh, but for this talk, uh, I'm trying to restrict it to those that, when I thought back, taught me some specific lesson 
that was useful to me, and I hope that I can impart this uh, to you guys. And I guess uh, since uh, and many of them involve my mistakes, frankly, and, uh, and that'll fit in the 45 minutes that I have to talk, uh, put this together. And, and so therefore, it's uh, really geared to the young people having yet made your mistakes, and maybe we can uh, help you on a few of those. Uh, so first, since I did name it the art of medicine, I, I, I uh, you know, that's a term that's sort of bandied about. A lot of people don't believe it. Um, so I, I'd just like to ask whether you think the art of medicine is uh, a way to practice medicine when there's no good evidence, a way to explain the variability in advice from different physicians. By the way, there are many of our bosses don't like that, that you can come into clinic with three physicians, come out with three different uh, 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 plans of uh, treatment, or a distinct skill we should really strive to achieve or just uh, say we should just practice um, evidentiary medicine or all of the above. And uh, I, I do want to comment that there is some data in here, and um, the fact is it's nice to talk about evidence-based medicine. It's nice to have a randomized controlled study, but it just isn't there. Uh, if you actually look, about 80% of what we do is based on observational data and common practice. Um, that's just the facts. Um, so we uh, look at the past and we make predictions what's likely in the future until there really is good evidence. And unfortunately, it only accounts for perhaps a fifth of uh, what we do. And yet, uh, all of us know there's a patient sitting in front of you. So you have to do something. And uh, we uh, think that uh, there's no way to get by without good evidence. So uh, you, you just have to uh, use uh, the best of your experience and knowledge. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, um, so that said, um, I'd like to tell you about my first patient encounter. It was in, uh, I went to PNS, it was in the third year. Uh, at that time, uh, the students came in in the early morning, I was on surgery, and I had to draw the bloods. So it was about 6.30 in the morning. Uh, I came on the ward, there were patients, it was a large female medicine ward, maybe 30 females, and uh, lined up against each side. Uh, there was one nurse on the ward, and I was busily drawing the bloods on uh, patients that had uh, cards. And all of a sudden, uh, one of the nurses said, uh, come quick. I quickly looked around. I mean, I had a third-year student, so they couldn't be talking to me. But I was the only one there, so I uh, came quick. And uh, the patient, this uh, woman, I would say a late middle-aged woman, was spitting blood out of her mouth. Uh, actually, it was a little more different from spitting blood. It was pulsatile. It was spurting blood. And I can tell you, as a third-year student, I had no idea what to do. Um, I had you know, never seen anything like this. And my catabba didn't spit any blood. And uh, I, again, they had these very large uh, stainless steel wash bowls. They, people used to have like a wash in the thing. So I uh, grabbed the bowl and, and held this woman, and I put the bowl in front of her. And the blood kept coming out, looked like with each heartbeat. I couldn't see life possible. And as I leaned over uh, to her, she said, um, I don't want to die now. 
at least not this way. That's my first encounter in medicine. She said to me, I don't want to die now, at least not this way. And it was a striking encounter, but it is part of something I later realized, and that is most patients do want to live no matter how well. Believe it. And it gets a little frustrating sometimes when you're in the ICU and uh, you have a patient with multi-organ failure, you don't know if they'll survive, you don't know in what shape they'll survive, and you have this feeling, well, maybe death is preferable. Maybe you think so, they don't. That's something I've learned. And there have been ample studies to prove that. Data shows there's multiple studies that show when you assess their quality of life, they rank it way higher than when we assess their quality of life. So patients adapt to a lot of things that we healthy people think beforehand we won't adapt to, but they do. Uh, and uh, they think their life is uh, much more valuable, perhaps, than you think it is. And uh, for me, it served me in good stead. Uh, I was a firm chief for a long time and, you know, had to deal with these uh, patients who were very, very sick and house staff that were very frustrated. And uh, it was pretty useful for me to um, say uh, that uh, if this patient recovers at all, they'll be pretty happy. Um, not necessarily if they recover only at their prior level of uh, health. So uh, just for, after a little serious, I like to give one for amusement. Um, so in my first day in dermatology, um, we, there was a group of us, perhaps 10 of us, and Dr. Meyer Slatkin was our dermatology attending. And he brought in the patient, and he, uh, one person had to come up and describe the rash. And uh, they did, one of the group described the rash. And Meyer asked him, so uh, he, as he told, well, it's red, it's, it, it, uh, you know, um, no, it doesn't look bumpy. He said, well, what, what does it feel like? So this goes like that and says, it's flat, Meyer. So that was the, we went through the first day. The next day, we didn't have Meyer. We had Carl Schweik. And Carl, another person came, the first student came up. He looked at the rash like that. He goes like that. Carl looks at him and says, you know what that was you touched? He said, no. He says, so don't touch. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the question is, what kind of doctor do you want to be, like Meyer or like Carl? Um, you know, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> but Brian sort of mentioned it, and it leads me into uh, mentors. Mentors and role models. First we'll talk about, which I differ uh, somewhat. Um, I'm a product of a divorced home, and uh, I have to say that uh, it didn't do well for me when I was young, and uh, I got in a lot of trouble. My mother seen the principal, all this stuff. But it was, uh, well, because, uh, you know, I was in New York. I want to be in with the tough kids, and uh, I did a good job of that. Um, but I, I uh, got rescued by mentors. Uh, one was, uh, well, one, I got moved to another school, uh, so uh, that's how I got Miss Agletina as my uh, mentor. Uh, my mother just moved me out of there. And uh, it was interesting, I learned later, she was uh, J.D. Salinger's uh, elementary school, and uh, 
when he comes back, Holden Caulfield comes back from, from his private school, he actually is at my public school. Um, I won't go more into that. Uh, but she, uh, she was great and, and, and saw stuff in me. And more important was Mrs. Gordon. When I, I got into Bronx science, my father didn't want me to go because he didn't think I could do the work. Um, she uh, was the most demanding teacher you've seen. Uh, you, you just had to love her. And uh, uh, basically uh, told me she'd grade me uh, based on what she thought I could do rather than what uh, I was doing. And, uh, I learned to myself that rather than saying I hate school, which was what I was doing, uh, that not only did I like it, but I was good at it, um, you know? So it was uh, a real important thing. In addition, role models. Um, I don't know that uh, if there were any old PNSs who knew Rajan Harvey. She was a very early uh, cardiologist and for me gave me what I'd call discipline and responsibility. I think those are really key features for any physician. And then there's Frank Epstein. Uh, Frank Epstein taught me everything else. I loved Frank Epstein. I thought of retiring when he died. This is a quote, and I'm going to read it. It's not from him, but I think it's about him. Good doctors realize that compassion arises not from will, but from a deep sense of goodness. If we are to awaken this quality in our students and our colleagues, we must demonstrate it. And I don't know that there's anyone who demonstrated it better than Frank. He would fluff the pillows of patients. It was quite amazing. Uh, loved the guy. So now, um, let me tell you one of the patients that taught me something. Eliza was a, a homeless alcoholic, uh, one of those who liked to get admitted to the hospital. Uh, you know, I'm sure she liked a home, uh, a warm bed, a good meal, and, uh, and most of all for Eliza, some care and attention. She came into the ED when I was there, uh, and uh, uh, she knew the various things told about a period of unconsciousness. So I asked her about uh, the unconsciousness, and she described uh, every moment of the unconsciousness. <laughs> uh, so that it was quite clear that she had never been unconscious at all. Um, so I told this really tough uh, ED nurse to discharge her. Um, she, uh, the nurse picked her up, Eliza walked about five steps and keeled over. And the nurse viewed this as a face, said, don't worry, Dr. Brown, I'll get rid of her. Uh, but when she keeled over, her skirt came up like above her waist. And on her thigh, from almost her knee to the buttock, was this huge area of angry cellulitis. And I realized, God, I got so enmeshed in this unconsciousness. I, I didn't even ask her anything about her fall, about what was wrong, about other things. Um, I realized that um, you should always take a full history, listen to your patients, hear what they want to tell you. It doesn't take you too long, and I can tell you this much, Eliza was one of the most colorful patients I've had in my life. She had really great stories to tell, and I liked listening to them once we had admitted her and uh, worked on her cellulitis. And if I had sent her out, at the very least, I would have compromised her health and perhaps her life. Uh, out, out on the street. Um, and uh, this is something that uh, the house staff uh, needs to think about. Um, I know you cut and paste. 
I understand we're in an environment where it's hard at times to, um, you know, write everything down. I don't mind if you cut and paste. If you've taken the history and you correct the cut and pasting so it's uh, actually correct. I'll tell you, you will be a lot better doctor. And uh, you'll find the whole story is uh, a heck of a lot more uh, interesting. But in the current environment of focused care, uh, I know this is maybe difficult to achieve, but I urge you to do your best to achieve it. You, you'll love your career much better, because uh, I, I think that's one of the unique things. Well, Dr. Epstein gave me my first job. Um, he was very frugal, so I got paid very little. But I was the master of the medical student dormitory at Yale. And at Yale, uh, the students would uh, put out a bowl of milk for this uh, fellow cat named uh, Mittens. We named her Mittens because she had four white uh, paws. And uh, in return for the bowl of milk, uh, Mittens would bless us with five kittens in a litter. And my wife and I had to go to downtown New Haven to palm off the kittens on suckers that wanted kittens. And <laughs> they were very cute at that time. Uh, so I went to the student council and I told them, listen, if you uh, feed this cat, you have to take responsibility, you have to spay the cat. And the students told me, don't worry, Dr. Brown, uh, we, we don't have much money, but, but, but we'll take care of it. So a few days later, they uh, spayed the cat. And a few weeks later, uh, my wife said, uh, doesn't mittens look a little big to you? <laughs> so I said, uh, maybe. So I called a veterinary doctor that I knew, and I asked him, so is there pseudosiasis, false pregnancy in cats? And he said, uh, maybe there is, he says, but more often there's true pregnancy. <laughs> so uh, uh, I said, uh, I started to tell him the story, and I didn't get very far. Um, I told him how the students took the cat and tied the tubes, whereupon he, he broke in, went into gales of laughter, and kept repeating, tie the tubes, tie the tubes. He said, that's a human operation. He said, if they did it well, which I doubt, because the tubes are very small, you have the only cat in the world who's going to have menstrual periods. <laughs> and yeah, I thought about it. He said, cats don't have menstrual periods. They only ovulate after they have intercourse. And they get pregnant virtually all the time. Um, so a few weeks later, um, Mittens tried to deliver a single stillborn kitten, half in, half out. I bundled Mittens. I brought it to the vet. The vet did a hysterectomy and uh, gave me the specimen. I took the specimen back to the dorm. I brought the four students around my kitchen table, and I showed them their pathetic misplaced sutures that obliterated the uterine cavity and obviously not the tubes. Um, and uh, I told them that uh, uh, they said, well, we're not experienced. I said, well, that isn't the problem. Your problem is that you took an animal to animal surgery and you didn't have the least idea what you're going to do. You, you didn't research it. You did the wrong operation. In humans, this is like wrong leg surgery or one of these other things. You did the wrong patient. I said, that's the sin. I can tell you that these students 
we'll never do anything like that again. This was a real learning experience for these students. And the lesson here, this may have been a cat, but you should know what your patients are doing and put your patients' interests first. Always know what you're doing. So the AMA reminded us, a doctor owes a duty of loyalty to his or her employer. We've talked about this, Brian. Um, and this divided loyalty, can, now that we're mostly employed physicians, can create conflicts of interest, such as financial incentives to over or under treat patients. I guess my question for some in the audience, are our drive-by procedures really done to help patients or increase revenue? I'm going to leave this to the conscience of the interventionalist. I don't want to get involved in this. But I hope everything that this audience does is motivated primarily by patients. And I think, unfortunately, if you have an employer um, who uh, doesn't go along with that, my advice, quit. We're professionals first. You'll be happier in the end. So uh, from this, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, Emma. It was about 10 in the morning, and I got a call from the uh, women at the front desk. In those days, you got a call, and they, they plugged the phone in. Uh, many of you may have seen this in old uh, movies. Oh, just maybe I should tell you that I took Mittens home when my kids went, and she lived with us for 13 years, although with a very protuberant abdomen. <laughs> um, the, um, so they called me at 10 o'clock. I'd actually hospitalized Emma about two months before uh, when she took an overdose of uh, sedatives in a suicide attempt. And uh, the psychiatrist, uh, you know, took care of her, thought she was ready to go back to school. But this time, when I came back to the dorm, and, and I found that these women were looking at her every day to see that Emma came out of the dorm and went to, to class. It was quite remarkable. So I ran back and uh, went up to the, the female floors on the top of the dorm. And this time, Emma was in dense coma. I, intubated, I was good at it then. I intubated her, and, uh, you know, she had taken a polydrug overdose from forged prescriptions, actually, uh, and uh, recovered. Um, the psychiatrist actually initially, you know, asked her whether she's suicidal. She said no, and they were ready to let her go back. But I convinced them they, they put her on the psych ward uh, at Yale. And I'd visit her every day in the morning, and I can remember keep telling my wife she doesn't seem better. She'd babysat for us. And uh, uh, about two weeks later, the um, psychiatrist thought she was a lot better. And to me, she, she did deny suicidal ideation, but she didn't seem to be a lot better. But he thought she could go back to school. And I, you know, I was a young doctor, and I wasn't a psychiatrist. And uh, a little voice in my head kept telling me that, that she's, this doesn't seem good. Um, but, uh, but they're the experts. And uh, so I, um, I went along. She came back to school with a plan to see the psychiatrist every week, which she did. Uh, the summer came, and the psychiatrist took a week vacation. And Emma put a shotgun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Um, it bothers me to this day about Emma. I, I absolutely knew better. I, I know I did. And uh, I love Richard Feynman. I love his quotes. Um, Science is the belief in ignorance of the experts. So 
We talked before about evidence, but without evidence, don't let expert credentials replace common sense, instinct, or intuition. Um, and, a, and, a, and a corollary is, uh, why is that little voice at times in your head so persistent and nagging? Because it wants to be sure that you listen. I didn't, and I regret it to this day. Anyway, so a lesson learned. Maybe you'll do better. I actually did on a subsequent case. So one thing I'd like to say is, um, even when there's evidence, even when you're giving patients an evidence-based treatment, it's been looked at that about 13% of adults have the necessary knowledge and skill to fully comprehend, comprehend what you tell them. Millions of, uh, of uh, U.S. adults uh, don't uh, have difficulties following their medication instructions, understanding those handouts you give them, and uh, completing uh, insurance forms. So. You have to tailor advice. You, you should know this patient. You should give the kind of advice that that patient is likely to follow. Um, uh, uh, in my mind, that's part of what we do, a part of what a good physician does to get specific patients to listen to what they're telling. Well, I'd like to sort of point out, uh, even though I've um, maligned experts, uh, I, I don't think that's uh, universally the case, o only if you have doubts. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about um, what I view the best consult I've ever had. And it was on Psy. Um, I was a firm chief, so at that time we took care of the patients. Uh, I took care of five-sevenths of the patients that were on our ward. And uh, this uh, gentleman came in. He had uh, uh, hypotension, he had a hemiparesis, uh, he had uh, nystagmus, um, and uh, he seemed confused. Uh, I frankly wasn't sure what was going on. I called a neurology consult. The resident comes in, does an exam of Psy, and walks out and tells me that uh, I think he has Wernicke's encephalopathy. I said, Wernicke's? Yeah, I came from Bellevue. I know Wernicke's. I said, Wernicke's? I said, well, he's not an alcoholic. And, and what do you mean? They don't have a hemiparesis. He said, oh, that, an old struck. Well, we gave him thymine. He got promptly better. We uh, sent people out to his home. He had bottles hidden all over the house. Uh, an alcoholic he was, one of these quiet ones. And a lesson I learned and used to use, the neurologists do all the time, due to the age of our patients now, the so-called law of parsima, it's nice to find one reason for it all, has just been repealed. <laughs> um, uh, people now have multiple diseases. and. Uh, uh, you, you have to think of whether two common diseases are much more likely than one rare one. Um, otherwise, uh, you're going to make mistakes. And, you know, if any of you have been reading the stuff of Jerry Groupman, he cites that we close our minds way too soon. Uh, we need to keep open minds. And suddenly you may find the second condition comes in. And much better <coughs> does what I would view you need to do on difficult patients, which is there's uh, lots of red herrings, but you have to try and explain all of the key features of the case as best as possible. 
You know, it's kind of like uh, if I, uh, when you had an erector set when you're a kid, right? If they leave one piece out, you can't build a crane. We will build a crane. Uh, on the other hand, if they put an extra piece in the wrong piece and you put it in first, the crane doesn't come out right either. So you have to sort of figure out whether you're dealing with a red herring or you're not. Um, this is a story that uh, I actually haven't told until this uh, talk um, because, uh, well, frankly, because uh, I, uh, I don't like telling it. Um, I uh, feel that I ought to um, use it for a lesson. And uh, I dealt with this uh, old guy, uh, Harry. Uh, Harry came into the ED and he said he had abdominal pain and back pain, flank pain, and he had fever. And I, I did an exam of uh, Harry. Um, but first I'll tell you a little bit about the ED. So the ED at Bellevue at that time had two places, had the admitting office and the dressing office. That's what they called them. In the admitting office there was a single resident, me. And you had absolute power. You could admit to any place in the hospital except OB. You weren't allowed to admit to OB. And um, uh, uh, some of you may know it was very important in those days to be what was called a rock. And uh, some places had a Rock of the Year award. <laughs> Yale had a Rock of the Year award. I was on the four to midnight shift. It was about 10 p.m. when Harry came in. I hadn't admitted anyone to the entire Bellevue Hospital in the four to midnight shift. I thought I was going to go down in history. <laughs> I was going to be the total rock. This is going to be a great thing. So Harry came, and uh, I didn't know what to do with him. I figured, well, I sent him for chest x-ray and uh, abdomen films. I figured maybe he wouldn't come back till after midnight, and I wouldn't have to worry about Harry. And when the nurse said, well, what do you think's wrong with Harry? I remember this well. I said, well, maybe he has a urinary tract infection with the flank pain. And I sent him off. I said, oh, wait, there's no temperature on the sheet. Um, you know, we had lice was observed or not, but there wasn't a temperature in the sheet. So as he rolls off, she tells me it's 105 and not 100.5. So I called up radiology and I said, send Harry back. Just quick do the film, send him right back. And I admitted him as an acute abdomen. I hope you listen to what I said. I didn't do another exam. And I admitted him as having acute peritoneal signs. Um, so my view <coughs> is, don't lie, um, I'm glad that I learned this lesson young. Uh, you should be honest to yourself always. And now we know to our patients, almost always. Uh, perhaps demented patients now and then, it's better to follow a, a good course, but, but otherwise almost always. And certainly always, to be honest to yourself, don't think you're doing it all the time. Because I've learned the temptations in my own life that I don't listen to. So uh, I'll give you a for instance. Um, you're in clinic, you're in a hurry, uh, it's the last patient, you want to get out, you notice sphygmomanometer is falling really fast, and the pressure with the fast sphygmomanometer is 138 over 88. By the way, you look at clinic charts, you find a lot of those. 
you know you should pump that thing back up again, let it go down slowly, and it's going to be on 45 over 95. But that will mean you have to go through his hypertension meds, you have to take more time. So you write 138 over 88. Don't do it. You'll feel bad about it later. Uh, be honest to yourself. You'll feel good about it later. Um, I'm really happy. I, I think I followed it as best as I can uh, for the remainder of my life. And I would be willing to tell a few stories uh, about that. So now, um, I'd like to get to something uh, after this personal. Uh, I ignored my uh, symptoms. Uh, I had three months, I had GERD, I didn't feel well, I, I didn't do well. Uh, and then I got some pain, I had to sort of pain here and in the back. And I thought, uh, geez, I must have a gallbladder disease. Although, frankly, when I thought about my symptoms, and none of it sounded like gallbladder disease to me. But uh, I went uh, toward the ER. As I was walking across the parking lot to the ER, actually, I told my wife, the pain's better, let's go home. <laughs> and, uh, but she hustled me into the ED. And uh, the um, uh, resident in the ED said, uh, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, you ever feel these? Uh, I felt here there were these hard, uh, non-painful uh, lymph nodes all across my uh, supraclavicular fossa. Uh, I said, darn, I said, you know, a 64-year-old white man doesn't have sarcoid. Um, so uh, I uh, uh, had my CAT scan and uh, found that I had uh, high-grade uh, malignant lymphoma. So uh, my oncologist uh, started me uh, on uh, treatment, and he told me, um, you know, of all the side effects, uh, you'll uh, lose your hair, your chest hair, your pubic hair, everything. Um, so uh, yeah, that's what. <laughs> I don't know what you see there. You know, when I digress, this suddenly looks to me like a poor hair restoration award ad <laughs> where they uh, put the pictures the wrong way. <laughs> um, so I came back to Lowell. I said, you know, Lowell, uh, you, you told me about all the hair, but, but you didn't tell me about the nose hairs. He said, uh, the nose hairs? I said, yeah, you lose your nose hairs. He says, all oh, the nose hairs. I said, this is a really cold winter in December. I said, you know, if I don't walk around with a tissue, the mucus will hit my shoe. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it evaporates on, on the nose hairs. And... Uh, uh, lots of other little things like that. So we doctors, we don't know everything. Uh, you know, patients uh, help us to uh, learn things. So you, you, you have to listen to patients. And believe me, you'll come up with, uh, with a lot of uh, new things. So um, uh, when... Uh, when I say this, I, I guarantee that if you're in oncology, I think many of you know that probably at least 80% of your patients have taken herbals and are doing other things. They, they, uh, they don't want to tell you either because they're embarrassed, because they think, you know, maybe you don't have enough faith in them or you'll tell them not to take it or whatever. 
or uh, maybe they lie because of shame. But we, we have to view this as a natural thing. If, if so many do it, uh, it's okay. We, we, we shouldn't blame them, but we should encourage uh, uh, the kind of rapport that it takes to get patients to speak to you. And I know because they spoke to me as I walked around holding my pole and meeting all, all of these people. Well, uh, in addition to having um, that realization, uh, other things happen. So I got treated with other meds, and I had an unknown interaction. And uh, let me tell you, chemo is really tough. And this treatment, too, cycle two, within two days, I had uh, severe leukopenia. I had mouth ulcers all the way up and down. I had thrush. It was quite uncomfortable um, uh, from this uh, interaction. And I spoke to Lowell, my oncologist. Uh, well, let me sort of, let me sort of say that um, this is well known about uh, the lack of medication compliance. I'm sorry I didn't make this point. Uh, there are deaths due to this. Uh, a lot of prescriptions, as you know, are never filled, sometimes because of money, but sometimes because they, they don't, uh, you know, you, you don't have good enough repair, rapport to convince them to take it, and a lot of them don't continue it. Um, and I also want to point out uh, our relationship to our doctor. Um, and uh, this is mine. I posed them for this, but uh, a lot of you are guilty of this. I've seen this in open door of offices. So Ma Mark Aronson's my general doctor. I love Mark, uh, but the computer isn't sick here. I am. And, uh, and, I, and I would say, of these two doctors, which one do you want to go to, uh, the guy on the right or the guy on the left? Um, so rapport is a very important thing. Um, I had great rapport with my oncologist. I, I uh, need control, but I told him, Provided he'll discuss it with me, even if I disagree, I'll do everything he said. And uh, I did do that. Um, so when I got the mouth ulcers and the thrush, it was really uncomfortable. He told me, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And uh, the actual quote really comes from Nietzsche. Uh, which does not strong, destroy me makes me strong. It comes from Twilight of the Idols. And so I got interested in these quotes. And if you read Nietzsche, the other thing he says is, he who has a why in life can bear almost any how. Kind of odd quote. Uh, so when the going gets tough, you've got to remember, think about these patients. Think about what they're in. They, they still have to take those meds, some of which are not comfortable. Uh, chemo certainly isn't. They bear pain, and they eat with no appetite because they know they've got to eat to live. And my question for you is just think about what, what is it that gives us patients reasons to live? Uh, well, it's life's anchors. Your family and loved ones, uh, work maybe to be accomplished that you feel you want to get done before you die, or faith and prayer if you're a religious person. Th those are the things. Th those certainly were the things uh, for me. I I've loved my work. Um, this shows us uh, 50 years ago with Dana Ashley. People will remember him if they went to PNS. So my advice to fellows, I, I was the clinical chief for 40 years and the training program director for most of that. A lot would ask, oh, Dr. Brown, what job should I take? I said, I don't know what job you should take. But go and visit, 
picture yourself going in Monday morning. Believe me, TGIF, I love Friday, I'm going to like being home. But I like going to work Monday morning. I've liked it for all this time. I'm still not retired, and uh, I urge you to try and find a job you like. It's, uh, it's really satisfying. You'll all make enough money. Don't worry about it. It'll be good enough. Um, and if you like it, you'll uh, get to this age, and you won't have to expiate your sins like all my rich lawyer friends who are now doing everything uh, to try and uh, make up for the service they didn't do during their younger years. So what about uh, me? Well, uh, family comes first. Uh, my wife, Judy, has been a volunteer at the BI since 2003. She was a volunteer long before that. My daughter is the social action chairman at her temple, and she's a caring mother. Uh, my son, shown with his family, uh, he was uh, the first three, first three physician responders at Ground Zero for the 30 hours on uh, September 11th. Those two pictures came from uh, the Sunday uh, Times uh, magazine in a big spread. Um, uh, so. Uh, Service is really um, something that uh, you will get a lot of uh, joy out of. So to close on the art of medicine and give you time to ask questions, I think we could certainly say that uh, you have to practice medicine without good evidence. Um, you are not only um, should you show variability, um, it's imperative that you show variability because um, we've been faced with systems changes. There's even, uh, you know, one of the six things, system-based medicine. System-based medicine is for systems. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good way to improve medicine across the board. But remember, when people cite these things like Toyota Lean, people are not Toyotas. Every one of them is different. That's not so for the Toyotas. So you certainly need to practice medicine geared to that patient in front of you. And obviously, I think a distinct skill. So I have the feeling all of the above contribute uh, to a good physician. Uh, because until we have evidence for everything, which I doubt we're going to have, um, Medicine has got to be both uh, a science and an art. And the art is based on good common sense and your experience over your life. So uh, I guess to conclude, I, I want to wish all the students, residents, fellows, and young physicians uh, satisfying uh, careers I've had uh, over the past 50 years. And uh, thanks for listening to my musing. I, I do have more stories to tell. But uh, I said I'd keep this to 45 minutes, and I will. Um, so uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Bob. We have time for comments, reflections, thoughts. I guess I'll, I'll start. Oh, Arnie, go ahead. Thank you, sir. No, no, go right ahead. I would say it's absolutely brilliant and very much needed, but I would challenge your affirmation that medicine is still 15% science. You know, with the so-called evidence that we have is based on population, and we don't know where within that population an individual patient lies. 
I think that almost medicine, medicine is almost entirely intuitive, entirely in art, that is supplemented by science, but it starts, as you said, with looking at the patient and knowing the patient. Well, um, you know, um, I, I gave it 80%. You want to give it 100%. Uh, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that's strictly true because, say, like in, uh, when we talked yesterday about the fistula first, so we used observational data. We used multiple thousands of people. So the data is sort of convincing, and yet it shows disparities of which people do better with which. And so my view is the 20% science is the observational data of what happened to them. And the 80% is just what you say. You have to fit that person and decide, one, did that study um, fit this person? And if so, is, are they in a subcategory in, of that study or not in it at all? Uh, one of the big problems has been the extrapolation of data to older and older people. Uh, you know it to be true. I mean, you, you can't you know, say a person in their 90s should get data that limited to 65-year-olds and younger. Um, you, you might, but it would take, uh, in my mind, uh, a lot of intuition to decide that this particular person at 90 is the equivalent. Um, you know, that, that's just it. As, as physicians, too, I, I know that all of you guys uh, think you're immortal. I, I, I did, too. I, I actually had the chutzpah to say to my wife at age uh, 60, I remember this. I went on my 60th birthday. I told my wife two-thirds of my life is over. <laughs> I, I somehow had the idea that I was guaranteed 30 more years to 90 years old because I have a very old family. <laughs> Boy, I had to eat those words. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to quibble about the percentages. But we both agree that the application of, the, of whatever science there is is, uh, is key. And for some things, there is never going to be a randomized control study because there are certain things that no one will be the control. And uh, some maybe will be able to compare with standard of care, you know, the new treatment against standard of care. Uh, it won't tell you whether it's better than placebo, but it will tell you whether it's better than whatever we're doing. Bob, there have been many physicians who have become patients, and many have spoken of it, as you have, and many have written about it. Um, and I bet that it changes your perspective, at least that's what we hear. How do you convey that learning that happens when you become a patient to people who are either young and in training and not sick, and, and how do we transmit that empathy and that understanding? What, what ways... Uh, do you think that that can get to people without having to suffer mm -hmm. through it themselves or experience that themselves? Uh, well, I did my best to do it today. Yes. So it's, it's <laughs> um, nice and it's... Uh, Jerry Groupman had me uh, about uh, two, three weeks ago uh, come to uh, a course he called Mindful Medicine, uh, and I let the Harvard fourth-year students uh, question me um, about uh, my experiences. Uh, you know, whether they got much out of it, I don't know. Is there any young person willing to say here whether they got much out of it uh, or not? Um, uh, you know, it really is uh, different. I, I, I actually think um, the important thing is to be able um, to um, put yourself in their shoes. You know, sort of just think for a second, because um, 
There's always a fear at times, particularly with annoying patients, that uh, you'll get into a somewhat uh, adversarial relationship. And uh, often if you put yourself in their shoes, you kind of see that uh, um, you, you can do much better. Uh, I mean, you know, you're in a, in a treasured position and they're often inadequate. Um, and uh, once you see that, you have a lot more uh, empathy uh, for that. I, I, uh, there's been a, a, a sort of feeling that empathy is lost. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I think that's a misinterpretation of the data. What we lose is sensitivity. Uh, because you can't, uh, you know, go berserk over every bad thing that happens. Um, you know, if you were a surgeon, you know, you, you, you wouldn't even be able to finish the case, you know, when uh, a bad bleeder opens up. So, you know, I think that uh, uh, it's a question of restoring what mostly we have is empathy and realizing that we shut off this sensitivity at the wrong time. Which I just tell a start from my fellowship. I remember, Bob, I don't know if you remember this guy, but we had a, a guy on dialysis at, when I was a, a fellow, and, and, and this guy, was, he lived, he, at that time, he sort of lived at the BI. He, he wore shorts and a sombrero, and he, he, he was an engineer, and he was schizophrenic. Mm. And he used to come out of the shower, and, and of course, his fellows, we thought this was ridiculous that he was your patient, and, and that, you know, and he used to think he was getting sucked out of the dialysis machine, and he wanted to adjust the ultrafiltration control. And you could have, our reflex was to say, you know, don't, don't let him touch the machine, don't do anything. And I think you gave him parameters. He could adjust it between 100 and 200. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about. It's like, for this guy, that, rather than create a fight, it gave him control and it gave him some respect and some dignity, and, and that's the kind of lesson I think. You know, the interesting thing is most of them put it right where you want them, <laughs> and they tell you how, you know, I know best, and they do what you, what you wanted them to do in the first place, only they did it. <laughs> Jonathan? One of the uh, challenges that uh, younger physicians are facing, I think, uh, but may not be aware of it, is the uh, stress between developing a professional identity and being forced into a position of being an employee <laughs> of, a, of a, you know, a, a corporate entity that expects them to behave in a certain way. And uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about um, how we uh, emphasize the professionalism and deal with the, this attempt to uh, sort of homogenize well, I already touched on the fact that I'm concerned about the fact that um, uh, an, an employee is sort of caught in the middle um, between an employer who is basically telling them what they have to do at work and, uh, in this case, the patient to whom we really should be beholden rather than the employer. Um, I, I, I'm not sure um, how to deal with that on an individual level all the time. But I think that it's important for physicians to uh, uh, get together and um, uh, join, you know, form groups that have common goals and make sure that uh, our employers and insurers recognize, um, you know, when there's a schism. 
I have the feeling that uh, I said to other people that I think in my lifetime I'm going to see a physician strike. I, I really don't want that to happen. I think it will happen. Um, but um, I do believe it's okay for employers to withhold their services and just do employees' uh, emergencies. But uh, frankly, I think that's a bad idea. Uh, I view the best as compromise. Uh, I, I don't think insurers are evil. Uh, I think that they're in corporations that are profit corporations, and uh, they're, it's their job to uh, do the best for their shareholders. That, that's their, their bosses. So we have to convince both that uh, we're a different kind of business and that we have to uh, recognize that it's our job to do the best for patients. And I actually feel most people in the country really understand that and will, will, will do that. I do think sometimes it's going to take groups of physicians to do it, where the employer realizes I'm better off uh, mollifying them than trying to fire them all and replace them. And so hopefully we won't get the strikes and we will get to do this. There, there are also occasional threats. Uh, I have a family with uh, hereditary uh, renal cell carcinoma. And one of them moved to Maryland. Uh, they wouldn't do ultrasounds. They told us she had to pay for the ultrasound each year. So I had to write a letter that I was going to be an expert witness when the tumor that she has a 90-plus percent of getting um, occurs. Then they paid for the ultrasound. Um, and by the way, she did get it. She's already had two of them. So, uh, so I'm sure the insurers are so good. Because that would be a multi-million dollar sum. I mean, they're, they're, they're not totally stupid. They, they, uh, um, so so I, think, uh, I think we can manage with common sense. Uh, we have to be reasonable. We've not always been right, either. Bob, I want to thank you for absolutely contributing to opening up the dialogue, and not only to answer the question I said before, how do we get to reflect on these experiences and grow, but, but also the openness and honesty that you have. And I think we, too, infrequently share with each other our fallibility, our mistakes, our humanness as we try to be the caregivers for others. And, and I think you set a wonderful example about how you need to do self-reflection. You grow from your errors. You grow from your thought processes and always putting the patient first. Thank you for being with us today, Bob. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.